Well, many of you might know the name Christopher Hitchens. Christopher Hitchens was one of these very public, militantly aggressive atheists that that was very popular on the scene a number of years ago, kind of like with Richard Dawkins and some of these guys. Uh, Sadly enough, he passed away a a few years ago, but back in 2007, he wrote a New York Times bestseller book called God is Not Great, lowercase g. God is Not Great, and the subtitle was How Religion Poisons Everything. Obviously, from the title of the book, he's not a fan of the idea of God or religion, and so for 300 pages, he just vehemently attacks the idea of religion, trying to disprove it, and at the beginning of the book, here's how he defines religion. He defines it like this. It's an operating system that you believe, quote, if you obey the rules and commandments that God has lovingly prescribed, you will qualify for an eternity of bliss. Religion, in his mind, is if you, believe, if you do what God tells you to do, then you will be accepted. If you obey, then you will be saved, then you will be accepted. That's how he defines religion. And he says, if you live your life operating with that understanding, if I obey God, then I'll be accepted by him, he argues this destroys everything about you and everything about society. He argues that religion is the chief contributor to racism, murder, ethnic cleansing, brainwashing, holocaust, sexual abuse, sexual deviance, all these other social evils. Now, I don't know how that sits with you, how you feel about that. Uh, you might totally agree with him. You might, that might totally resonate with you. Yeah, that explains a lot. That might make you feel defensive and angry. <laughs> Regardless of where it hits you, you might be shocked to discover that I think Jesus actually agrees with him on this point. If the operating system in your heart is, if I just obey God, do the right things, then he's gonna accept me, then he'll save me, then he'll answer my prayers, Jesus shows you this kind of destroys everything. That operating system is behind what is so messed up with the world. And so let me show you from the story what Jesus is doing because this story he's using to really intentionally blow up your conception of even what religion is. So here's what I wanna do. I just kind of walk through this story with you briefly, and then I wanna draw out three quick points at the end. So let's just walk through it, then I'll get to the three points. So story quickly begins by telling you that there's a father who has two sons, and we looked at the younger son last week. If you weren't here, I'll just recap it really quick. The younger son comes to the father and says, hey, you know how when you're gonna die, I get to inherit some of your stuff? Well, I want that stuff now. Now, what's interesting about this is that the father, in this day and age, the the money would have been tied to the land, to the estate. It wasn't like the father could just sell off some stocks and then just give the kid the money. He has to literally sell off part of his property in order to give this kid his money. And back in that culture, the way that it worked is that the older son would have gotten two times the portion of the inheritance of the other brothers. So if this father has two sons, the older son gets two-thirds of the property, the younger son gets one-third of the property. So, long story short, the father sells off a third of his land, gets the money, gives it to the kid, and once the kid has the money, he runs off and spends every last penny partying his brains out until he basically hits rock bottom, He returns home covered in pig filth, planning on asking his father to hire him back so that he could pay off this debt. And what the father does, shockingly, 
is he doesn't scold him. He doesn't shame him. Almost like there's no conditions. He just brings the kid back, reinstates him as a son, gives him a ring, gives him a robe, throws a massive blowout party, and invites everybody to come to it. That's the younger son. Now, in verse 25, Jesus introduces us to this older son. And the older son is out in the field working, doing what a good son should be doing. And he comes in from his work only to discover that his train wreck of a brother has come back home and his father is throwing this massive party for him. And so in verse 28, it tells us that he is angry. He refuses to go into this celebration and to be a part of this. And you gotta think about this from his point of view. Here's this older brother and he's got this, this, this idiot brother that just liquidated a third of his family's fortune on drugs and prostitutes, and he comes home, and not only are there no consequences, the father seems to reward this behavior with a party. Try to put yourself in in this kid's shoes and and contextualize it for our context. Imagine, like many of you, let's, let's just say that you grew up in Memphis, and you've got a younger brother who's a sophomore in college. So he goes to Ole Miss, and you're here as a senior at the University of Memphis. And your younger brother, his sophomore year, gets expelled from Ole Miss and gets the, the Fijis kicked off campus because he was selling drugs out of the basement. Only when he comes home, your dad says, hey, I'm going to make you VP of my hedge fund. And you know what? I want you to take the credit card. I want you to take a couple months and recoup at our house in Pickwick. And here you are, working your fingers to the bone, studying your brains out to just make bees, and you're, you're, you're working 20 hours a week at Kroger to help stock the shelves, and this happens, and you're angry. And so no doubt, the older brother in the story is angry, and he does what every rational person would do I refuse to go into this party and endorse what seems to be the worst parenting job ever. So in verse 28, the father sees him standing outside this party and he goes out and he pleads with him to come in. But look at the older, look at, look at the son's response in verse 29. He starts chewing his dad out. Verse 29, he says, look. He doesn't even address him as father. He just says, Look. These many years I have served you and I've never disobeyed your command and yet you never even gave me a young goat. I didn't even get a goat to celebrate with my friends. And in verse 31, the father is tenderly pleading with this kid to come into the feast a second time. And as we are just waiting to see what the kid's response is gonna be, is this family gonna be reunited? What's gonna happen? Jesus just ends the story. There's no, no resolution, nothing gets tied up in a nice bow. That's just the end. Now, what is Jesus up to with the story? Well, I want to draw out just kind of three points that I see what he's doing here. I think first, he is showing us, again, what it means to be lost. Secondly, he's showing you what it looks like to be lost. And then third, he's showing you what it takes to be found. So let's just look at these three ideas briefly. What it, ta- what it means to be lost, what it looks like to be lost, and what it takes to be found. And just to cite my sources, a lot of this is coming from a guy you've probably never heard of named Tim Keller. Pastor in, uh, used to be a pastor in New York City. A lot of this is coming from his thoughts, so thank you, Tim. 
Um, so first, what does it mean to be lost? Well, I said this last week, but each son is representing a different strategy for, for what home is. The younger son's strategy is he thinks that home is going to be found away from the father. So he takes all of his money and he leaves. He gets away from his father. And Jesus obviously shows us this strategy is pretty bankrupt. Self-indulgence, promiscuity, just completely giving in to all of your desires. It, you just end bottomed out. You end up lost. That strategy doesn't work. It's a dead end. The older brother has a strategy as well. He thinks that home is found serving his father. And this is so subtle because that sounds right. That sounds like that's admirable. I mean, he, he's the good kid. He, uh, he follows all the rules. He does everything right. He is the Boy Scout that is in church every single week, and he volunteers with the soup kitchen down the street. And yet, notice how the story ends. He is lost too. At the end of the story, he's outside of the party refusing to come in. He's alienated from the father as the father is pleading with him. He's just as lost as the younger son was. Again, Tim Keller makes this great observation that Jesus is showing us that there's really two different ways to be lost. One is to be really bad, and the other is to be really good. One is to break all of the rules, and the other one is to keep all of the rules. Now, if that makes zero sense to you, how can someone do all the right things, keep the rules, be the good person in the story and be lost. How does that make sense? Well, maybe this will help. There's a story that I heard a number of years ago that uh, was basically, it's a kind of another made-up parable by another pastor named Charles Spurgeon, who's a 19th century Baptist preacher. Familiar story, you may have heard it, but here's, the, here's basically the parable that he tells. He says, imagine there's this king in his kingdom, and he's this great, wise awesome king. And one day, one of his servants comes in, who's just a farmer in his kingdom, and he presents him with a carrot. He grew a carrot in his farm, and he presents the king with a carrot and says, king, I just want to honor you and, and bless you with, with the work of my labor. Here's, here's a carrot. And the king receives this carrot and says, wow, you know what? I'm so honored that you would do this for me, that you would share this gift with me. I want to give you a whole extra acre of my kingdom so that you can go do your carrot thing and, and work the carrots. And there's this other servant that is in the king's courts overhearing this conversation, and he thinks to himself, wait a minute, if that's what you get for a measly carrot, what am I going to get if I bring something better in? So the next day, that servant brings in this, like, war horse, this, like, stallion, presents it to the king and says, oh, king, I just wanted to give you this horse as a sign of my affection and devotion to you. I think you're awesome. I think you're an amazing king. And so the king receives it and says, thank you. And there's kind of this awkward silence. And the servant is like, and? And the wise king looks at the servant and says to him, yesterday, that servant gave me the carrot but you today are giving yourself the horse. And what the king's point and what Spurgeon's point is, is pretty simple. He's basically saying, you can be really good and do all the right things and present God with all of your obedience and all of your hard work and it just be an elaborate, sophisticated way of you really just serving yourself. 
what Jesus is showing you is that you can, you can, you can, you can obey, you can follow the rules, not to get God, but to get what you really want. You, you want to have people be impressed with you. You want God to give you a comfortable life, the life that you feel like you deserve. You, you want God to answer your prayers. You want to feel better about yourself. What's fascinating is that both of these kids share the same heart. The younger brother doesn't want the father. He just wants the father's stuff. And the older brother doesn't want the father either. He just wants the perks of obeying the father, of being seen as the good kid. He wants the recognition and the applause, and he wants the young goat, and I want the party. Both of them are lost. If that's what it means to be lost, and secondly, what does it look like to be lost? Well, let's look at it. The older son is angry. You see this. He's angry. He's furious. He doesn't want to go into the party. And verse 29, I think, is the key to understanding why he's so furious. Here's what he says. He says, I have served you, which is literally the words, to, uh, been slaving for you. I've been slaving uh, for you for years, and you haven't rewarded me with anything. I'm the one that's done everything right, and I've never gotten a party. What about me? What's he saying? He's saying this. I'm not getting the credit that a good person like me deserves. He believes that God has a duty to bless him and to love him. The father, I mean, he has a duty to love him and bless him because he has done everything right. Think of it like this. Sometimes when I walk into a building or I walk into a restaurant, um, if I notice that somebody's coming up behind me, I'll open up the door for them and kind of let them go in first because I'm a nice guy. And often they thank me and they walk in, but occasionally they won't even acknowledge that I've held the door open for them and they'll just walk right in. Maybe this has happened to you. And I'll be honest, that annoys me. That frustrates me because I think to myself, am I just your butler? Just welcome to the building. But okay, what's going on in my heart? What's going on in my heart is that my, my lost heart in that moment is wanting some recognition for my amazing sacrificial act of love. I, I want a little pat on the back for somebody to look at me and, and, and thank me for, being, for doing the right thing. Now, that's a silly, small example, but if you take that heart and you apply it to ultimate reality and spiritual reality, that thought process starts to look like this. Okay, God, I am trying to follow Jesus. I am making sacrifices. I'm not living my life like those people are. I'm not choosing to spend my money in the way that those people are spending their money. I'm trying to raise these children the right way. I'm doing the right thing. So why are you letting this thing happen to me? Why are you bringing this level of suffering in my life? Why can't you give me one thing that works out for me? What's the point of praying and following Jesus and doing all the right things if it doesn't get you anything? It's a waste. And that shows you, okay, there it is. That's what it looks like to be lost. It's anger and it's entitlement. Anger and entitlement. Steve Johnson, uh, NFL player, I think he's retired now, but back in 2010, he played for the Buffalo Bills. There's this famous game where he drops the game-winning pass. He, he, he would have had a touchdown. His team would have won the game. The very end, drops the pass, the other team goes the length of the field, they score, they win, he loses. After the game is over, here's what he tweets out to the world. I praise you, God, 
24-7, and this is how you do me? Thanks. You see the heart there? I do all this for you. You don't do anything for me. Now, here is where Jesus really has the potential to press in and undo us and disrupt us and frustrate us because what he's doing is he's saying, okay, there are a lot of people that are religious and moral and active and they think that they're Christians and they're not. They're lost. They're older brothers. And the way that you know it is by their anger and by their sense of entitlement. Now, what do we do? Because at some level, we're all angry and we're all entitled. We're all older brothers or older sisters. So what do we do? If you're beginning to think that the solution isn't just in trying harder and doing better and working harder to be a good person, then you're actually getting close to unlocking the whole point of Jesus' story here. What does it take to be found? That's the last thing. What does it take to be found? Two things. First is you have to change how you see yourself. You have to change how you see yourself. Every one of us here has parts about ourselves that we're ashamed of, parts about ourselves we don't want anybody else to see. These are the parts that we confess to God privately. And here's the thing, Christians don't just confess to God and deal with the parts about ourselves that we're ashamed of. We also confess to God the parts that we're most proud of about ourselves. We don't just confess our sin, we also confess the reason behind all of our goodness. Another way to say it is this, you and I have to stop looking at our goodness and at our gifts and at our abilities and the things that we're proud of about ourselves and we actually have to start looking through them because underneath them is a motive that is often driving those good things. The motive is often guilt and shame and fear and pride. If we just take me for an example, here, here I am as a, as a pastor, a public Christian, professional Christian, and it's so easy to use ministry to just inflate my own ego, to just do what I do for a living so that people pat me on the back, applaud me for being a good person, for being the right kind of person, when the reality is, is that I have to ask forgiveness for every prayer I've ever prayed, every sermon I've ever delivered, every mission trip I've ever been on, every quiet time I've ever had, every, the most intense worship experience of my life needs the Lord to forgive. Because everything that I do at some level is laced with unbelief, it's laced with a desire for recognition, it's laced with a desire for control and selfishness. So the first thing if you want to be found, the first thing that it takes is that you have to learn to see yourself differently. You have to learn to look through your goodness and, and be willing to admit even my best efforts to follow Jesus, my best efforts to serve this city, even the good things I do are so often driven from bad reasons. So you have to see yourself differently. And then secondly, lastly, you, you have to change the way that you see Jesus. You have to change the way you see yourself, and you have to change the way you see Jesus. When this younger son comes back home, you have to realize to, to bring this kid back into the family was incredibly costly to the older brother. Because remember, the younger son liquidated a third of the property. He already received his inheritance, and he already spent it all. 
everything that is on that land now 100% belongs to the older brother. This is why in verse 31, the father literally tells the, young, the older son, everything that I have is yours. Every ring, every robe, every animal, every door, everything, yours. So when this younger son comes back and the father reinstates him into the family, guess what? That just cut into the older son's inheritance. Immensely costly for the older son, which is probably another reason why he's so furious that the younger son returns. Now, let's just say that the older brother wasn't lost. Let's just say that his heart was actually connected to the heart of the father. What would the older brother have done when the younger son left? He would have grieved with his father and he would have left home and gone out looking for his younger brother and he would have willingly chased him down, found him and brought him back in at enormous cost to himself because he's family, because the father loves him. And we don't have an older brother like that in this story, but what Jesus is doing is he's painting a picture in vivid detail to show you that he's the older brother that you and I need. He's the one that doesn't just leave to go over to the next town to look for us. He leaves heaven and he comes all the way down to earth. And he liquidates everything that he owns, his very self, his very soul, his blood, his life, in order to bring you into the very family of God. When he's on the cross, he is stripped naked so that you could be clothed in the robe of righteousness that he deserves. That's his. He, he liquidates all of his assets on the cross so that you could be brought into the feast. He gives up everything to bring you and I home. Now, now, here's the thing. Here's what it takes to be found. You have to change the way that you see yourself and you have to change the way that you see Jesus, his costly sacrifice to bring you home. When those two things come together in your soul, that changes how you relate to God because you no longer start to relate to God as this uh, handyman that you just hire every now and then to fix your life. You don't relate to God as this vending machine that you call on every now and then to get some goodies you start to see God as your Lord and as your Savior. See, home is not found away from the Father, and home is not found in serving and slaving for the Father. Home is found with the Father in his celebration and party of grace that he throws for you. So here's how this story ends. Uh, it doesn't have an ending. <laughs> and... Um, you know why I think this parable doesn't have an ending? I think it's because Jesus is inviting you into it. Many of us are the older brother that is standing outside of the party and we don't wanna go in because we don't understand grace. And yet the invitation here for you and I is this, will you repent of your goodness and actually receive something way better, which is a massive over the top party of grace where everything is paid for by the blood of Jesus. Will you repent of your goodness and come into the party? That's the invitation for you this morning. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would convince us, would you overwhelm us with your love, with your grace, with the enormous expense of your son. And I pray that that would transform the way that we see you. Help us to be drawn into the party. 
to put down our sin and our rebellion and to put down our very righteousness and obedience, knowing that we don't have to purchase our way in. It's just free. You just invite us to come. I pray that we would. I pray all this in Jesus' name.